Welcome to our Didache Divine Service, Lesson 5 from Lutheran Catechesis tonight. Um, if you're sitting here and thinking to yourself, it's chilly, it's because only one furnace is working. So it's doing the best it can, but it hovers around 60, 62. Okay, so uh, it's okay if you want to wear your jacket or sweater, but put up your hood. You use most of it out the like I do, out the top. Okay, let us uh, begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, grant that the birth of your only begotten Son in the flesh may set us free from the bondage of sin. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We are in Lesson 5, which is page 80 and 81. Before we continue the reading from Genesis on creation, the fall into sin, I'd like you to turn to page 85, which has the first article and its explanation on it. Last week, when we looked at the account of creation we highlighted that God's nature of self-giving love is what moved him to create. And the superabundant life is on display in the six days <clears throat> excuse me, of creation, culminating in the creation of man in the image and likeness of the triune God. But it's easy to look at you know, all of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or even to recite just the first article of the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And think of yourself as the, some of you remember Carl Sagan, um, who I didn't much, have much regard for, but he talked about, you know, we're just one speck. And that's the planet earth, you know, in this vast universe, one little meaningless speck. And then, of course, we're little tiny specks on this meaningless speck. So what Luther does in his explanation in the small catechism of the first article is speak about you, Beth, you, Tyler, as his creation, that he has made you that he knows you. As the psalmist would say, I was knit together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So I want you to see that very personal way in which Luther both talks about creation in the first article of the creed and talks about his ongoing creative work in sustaining you and me and in providing protection for us. And then finally, at the end, the self-giving love of God is on display in the language, all this he does, only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy. So if you just flip to page 85 that has the first article and its explanation uh, on it, let us speak it together. What is the first article? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. So in the first article of the Creed, it restates what we had in Genesis. But there's a couple of points that this explanation highlights. First of all, that you and I are made and we are the objects of God's love. I am the object of his love. You are the object of his love. He has made me and all creatures. He's given me my body and soul. There's both the objective, he's made all things, and the subjective, he has made you and me personally. So he knows us. So the omniscience, the all-knowing attribute of God means that he knows you in every way, for he has made you. Now, the corruption of sin has done its damage, but he still knows you, and you're the object of his love. He still takes care of me, and he takes care of you. This is the idea of continuous creation, ongoing work of God, so that when God said in the first book of the Bible, you know, to the animals, be fruitful and multiply, that word is still in effect as the animals continue to be fruitful and multiply today. So the sustaining of the creation, it's not just simply on autopilot, like an airplane pilot could put the plane on autopilot. He is continuously caring for his creation. That's the Christian understanding. Um, he also gives all that stuff, all that I have, providing me with richly with all that I need to support this body and life. That's the ordinary stuff of what we will pray for in the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And then defending us from all danger, it doesn't mean that danger won't ever come, but it would be far worse without his defense and what he permits to come into our lives. According to the first article of the Creed, and we'll talk about this more as catechesis moves on, whatever he permits to come into our lives, even if it is hardship and suffering, he intends it to serve our good. So preventing Satan from destroying us. And then, as I said, all this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy. That's the language of grace, undeserved love, mercy. That self-giving love of God. So all of those things that he does, I have in my own notes, God's love is demonstrated in con his continuous involvement in the creation. 
from the most ordinary gifts of daily bread uh, to the most dramatic gifts of sustaining the, the world in its orbit around the sun and tilted just right on its axis, all that he does uh, is a gift of his grace and his continuous involvement in creation. The response to all of this is, for all this it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him that comes at the end. So God does, and then there's a response. And what God did in creation, when we're going to hear today about the creation of Adam and Eve, he did for our enjoyment. Not that we make a God out of these things, but he truly did it for our good, for our enjoyment. So part of the response to what God gives when we talk about giving thanks for it, is to receive it. It's not a bad thing to enjoy his gifts of creation. And that includes the people that he's given you in your life. As we will hear about today, God created Eve from Adam's side, and Adam rather enjoyed that. And God was not saying, that's not right. You shouldn't be enjoying this woman. What's the matter with you? No, he said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She is taken out of man. And he is rejoicing in this gift. And that's what God delights in, that we rejoice in what he has given and what he has made because it's good. And I think that's something that's also lost among Christians. So sometimes when we are looking at the law like we did for three weeks, we can only see it as a list of do's and don'ts and always thinking it all too much in the negative. We have many positive things as Christians to hold up before the world. Like being a man is good if you're a man. Being a woman is good if you're a woman. And if you're a man, that's good. You don't have to be a woman. Or if you're a woman, that's good. You don't have to be a man. And if you've got issues with that, well, that's a problem with the fall into sin that can be dealt with with God's word and other things. But what God has made us to be is good. And the institutions that he has created, like marriage and family, are good. And he wishes for us to enjoy it. Okay. I have for you in the handout that I give, gave a little bit of a review from last week. The first article, God the Father in Creation, we ascribe the work of creation to God the Father, but all three persons of the Holy Trinity are involved in the creation. God the Father creates all things by his word. We saw that last week. God said and it was so, and then he ordered the creation, exercising dominion by his word. And the word of God orders all of creation, governing the creation and defining what is good. The second uh, major point of review, because we're going to take this into today's reading, man is made in the image and likeness of the triune God of love. So the first bullet there, the Holy Trinity is a community of loving persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love is not only their nature, but it is love that begets the Son from eternity the Son receives the Father's love and loves the Father in return. 
and the Holy Spirit proceeds in love from the Father and the Son. So it is a community of loving persons, and we are made in his image and likeness. So man, the male and the female, is created to reflect his love in the world as a community of loving persons. So God is one and yet a community of loving persons, and when we're created in his image, he creates us in love to be a community of loving persons. And the foundational relationship is that of husband and wife that results in the one flesh union that uh, produces children. So the two points there that are indicative to being made in the image of God is that we're fruitful as God is in creation, and we have dominion over the creation as God exercised dominion in creation. So we're, we're to be like God is, the community of loving persons, and to do like he does, being fruitful and having dominion. Now this is nothing new. We're just reviewing what we went over last week. Let me pause there to ask if you have a question on that from last week or from what I've reviewed today, give you opportunity to ask that if you do. Anything at all, no matter how silly or stupid you might think it is. Carl, nothing? Okay. Becca, no? Took off your glasses, thought maybe. Uh, the third bullet under that review, marriage is the foundational relationship in humanity and has a Trinitarian shape to the giving and receiving of love within the marriage relationship. Husband and wife come together in one flesh, and out of this one flesh union, new life children are brought into the world. And finally, marriage and family is the foundational community within human civilization wherein man is to be fruitful and exercise dominion. So all governmental authority rests on the authority of marriage and family and that of father and mother. So in politics today or in the public uh, square discussion, you know, uh, school boards saying to, to parents, you have no rights here whatsoever, is turning the whole thing upside down. Well, then, if I have no rights, then you cannot have my children. Okay? Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Which is um, uh, something by way of extension here. Some have asked me about a religious exemption for the, uh, uh, for the COVID vaccine. And um, I have written a statement on it that is narrowly focused that... It, it, it speaks to be neither for nor against the vaccine as such, but rather argues the point that you, under God, are responsible for the medicines that go into your body, and that that particular right cannot be usurped from you by a government or by an employer, because that would be an act of usurpation and tyranny. Okay, So there are... People have reasons for not getting the vaccine. People have reasons for getting the vaccine. Ultimately, though, the point that I was arguing from God's word is it is your responsibility, okay? Which is different than saying, God says, Becca, you've got to have the vaccine. I can find no such Bible passage that would say that. Or you, God's word says, you should not get the vaccine, Beth. 
I can't produce those Bible passages. But I can produce Bible passages that speak about how the responsibility for the care of your body God has given to you. And by extension, if your parents, your children, the care of them, God has given to you. And uh, that should not be usurped. That's a little bit of a tangent. However, since it's in the public arena now, I thought I should at least mention it. Okay? Turn to Genesis chapter 2 then, verse 7. Look at this. I have 29 questions. Do you think we... I thought I would give you questions there because some of you may like to write a, jot a few notes and then you can follow along where we're at and it maybe can help you remember because there's actually a lot in this section. There was a lot last week, but I was burdened last week to especially talk about how the Word of God called everything into being, number one, and number two, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of the triune God of love. Hopefully, you're having a handle on that, and hopefully also the, uh, this understanding of the image of God enables you to see your own worth in God's creation uh, as men and women, husbands, wives, and then children. And any of you not children? You all were children of parents, right? Okay. So we start in verse 7. I had mentioned last week when we began the creation account from Genesis that there were three creation accounts, and I didn't get back to um, talking about that. Verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first one. It's a summary of everything. Then in the verses that follow, he secondarily describes how he does it, and the emphasis is on the word of God is the means by which all things were created. That's second. And in chapter 1, there is the creation of man in God's image. But then the third is here what we have today in chapter 2, verse 7, where the details of how he created man, male and female, in his image are uh, detailed out, okay, described in greater detail. So all of it's contained really in Genesis 1.1. But it's reviewing, going back over it, where we get more and more greater and greater detail. Okay. So verse 7 of chapter 2, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Breath and spirit in the Hebrew, same word, okay? So we say in the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. So breathing life into the dust of the ground, Adam becomes a living soul. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which encompasses the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. 
The gold of that land is good. Bedelium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one which encompasses the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Hiddekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. Now, in my questions, I don't deal with the rivers today, but isn't it interesting that in verses um, 10 through 15, talking about these rivers, we did have bodies of water mentioned in chapter 1, but not with this degree of specificity where the naming of actual bodies of water are given, nor do we have in chapter 1 specific references to gold and bedelium and the onyx stone, okay? We, we were talking about, you know, light and the sun and the moon and the stars and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and so forth, but no mention of things like gold or onyx stone. And I'm not going to mention too much about that any further tonight, but I'm going to take you into these questions how did God create man? We're back at verse 7. How did he do it? Come on, speak up. From the dust of the ground, he formed man of the dust of the ground. No moisture in dust. Then he breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And he becomes a living being, a living soul. Now this degree of Detail for the creation of man is given nowhere else in Genesis 1 or 2 in the creation of anything else. Here man is formed from the dust of the ground. God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He becomes a living being. He made all the other stuff too, but only man is spoken of in that degree of intimacy. When you form something, you know, if we form something, we got to get our hands involved or other parts of our body, you know. There's, and so there's an intimate connection. I think people, we would mentioned this, people who are craftsmen and build cabinetry or other things, they're, they're connected with that which they, they do. I'm told that farmers are connected with the land or the crops or their animals. Is that true, uh, Bob, would you say? Certainly in a much more intimate way, than someone whose only acquaintance with uh, crops is the grocery store, okay? So you've got that going on here. Now, the next question that I have is, where was the woman when man was created from the dust of the ground? Josh, what do you think? Within him. And that's the right answer. Now, this is the advantage of knowing the rest of the story, because if if nobody knew nothing about Christianity, any of the accounts in the Bible, and just read up to this point, they would say, she doesn't exist. It's just the man. But we know from the rest of the story, you get to the end of chapter 2, that she is within him. So it's actually not quite correct to say she doesn't exist. She is within him. As we'll hear later, she was taken out of man. What two unique trees are named in verse 9? 
Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight. But what are the two unique trees here? The tree of life. So what do you think that gives? The tree of life. What do you think that tree gives? Very good. And what's the other tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do you think that tree gives? Knowledge of good and evil. Now we'll talk about that knowledge. What does this mean? Okay. To know something doesn't necessarily mean intellectual development. Okay. If I smash my thumb with a hammer, I will know pain. It does absolutely nothing for my intellectual development. Except maybe I will try to avoid hitting my thumb with a hammer again. But it's the knowing of experience. Okay. The knowing of pain, in that case, is a kind of knowing, but it's not the knowledge that brings us closer to God, as one might presume. The only knowing that brings us closer to God is the knowing that God himself gives to us and wishes for us to know. When we start to attempt to know things outside of God's will for us to know them, we are farther from God, and we are also getting into trouble. Okay? Now, if you find that hard to grasp, think about being parents, those of you who are parents. Those of you who are not parents, you can think about your parents parenting you. Are there not things that you as parents know, I'm not even going to expose Becca to this. Would you say that, Amy? I don't want her to have any knowledge of this, whatever it is. Would you say there are things like that? Is it right for you to withhold certain experiences from her? Certain knowledge from her? Yes, because of perhaps her age, it's not the right time. Okay? And that's, is that good for her? Is that bad for her? It's good for her. So just because God withholds certain information from us does not mean it is bad for us. Quite the opposite. So the knowing that he wants us to know is the knowing he wants us to know, not the knowing of our own choosing, which gets us into trouble. More about these trees, but they come later. What did God give man to do before the fall into sin? Now I've got to go into verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So what did he give man to do before the fall into sin? Work. That's right. Work is not sinful. God works. We're made in his image, so... We work. It's only the problem of sin and the curse of the fall that will make work difficult. But in his state of innocence, he was created to be a gardener. 
to tend and keep the creation. Does that fit with the overall scheme of us being made in the image and likeness of God to do what? To be fruitful and to have dominion. So he, he was to till the garden. He was to tend the garden. No um, radical environmentalism there telling him, sorry, Adam, let this all be natural. He was put in the garden to tend and keep it. That's even before the fall into sin. I submit to you, the dominion becomes even more necessary after the fall into sin, and the dominion becomes harder after the fall into sin. What's the biggest pain, Beth, about managing other than finding people to help work on the gardens. But what's the biggest pain about the gardens at church? Weeds, weeding. Yeah. Can you imagine if you didn't have to do that? All you had to do is, all you went out to do is you'd, you'd clip some flowers and bring them in to have a vase on the altar. No weeds. The second problem are Japanese beetles or stuff like that. Those Pests. Right, Kevin? Okay. So work is not bad. Uh, now look at what comes next. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So question five here is, what was man given to eat and what was he not given to eat? First of all, what was he given to eat? Every tree of the garden you may freely eat. I don't know how many trees that, that was. A lot. How many fruit trees can you name? Apples, pears, plums, peaches, um, then there's uh, grapefruit, oranges, uh, lemons, uh, cherries, um, um, coconut, pomegranates, bananas, okay? Of every tree you may freely eat. And before the fall into sin, it was better fruit than you'd ever tasted. Of every tree you may freely eat. Does that sound like a God who is miserly? Can you use the word niggardly? Or is that a racist word? Well, I just used it, but I'm just asking. Can you use that word, Melissa? No? Have you ever heard that word? Yeah, I'll, I heard it when I was a kid. It's, it's, it's a, I don't think it has anything to do with uh, race whatsoever, but at, at any rate, it's this miserly, you know, selfish kind of, of thing. No, God says, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And there's super abundance. There's only one tree that you're not to eat of. The tree I have not given you. And then he actually gives a reason. You know, how many times have you told your kids, 
Bob, grow me in. Don't do this. And then they say, why? But here, God gives the reason why without even being asked. Of every tree you may freely eat, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you will die. Okay? Good deal. He gave us superabundance on the one hand, and he gave us a clear word of warning of what to stay away from on the other hand, and why. Good deal. Now, what I'm trying to emphasize here is almost always everyone focuses only on the negative, what they weren't to have. And they lose sight of all of the rest, the superabundance that they were to have. You follow? Okay. So, number six, why was it not good for man to be alone? That comes next. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable or fit for him. Why is it not good for the man to be alone? Now, this answer connected to being made in the image of God. You can't be fruitful if you're alone. If you want to have kids, Josh, you got to get married. Okay? And please get married before you have kids, by the way, even though that's contrary to the culture that we live in. Okay? You, you can't have children if you're alone. You cannot be fruitful. Nor can you exercise proper dominion. Okay? So, husband and wife coming together as one flesh to have children, it's not only necessary for the procreative act, it's also necessary for the proper dominion of the chitlins, like Caleb and others, okay? And the whole of creation. So, I will make a helper comparable or fit for him. This has to do with complementary uh, persons. A man is not a woman. Does that come as a surprise to any of you? A woman is not a man. Men and women are different. See, come to Didache, you hear all kinds of politically incorrect things. We actually live in a society and culture in which the accoutrements, I'll use that term of being male, or the accoutrements of being female are incidental, according to the world in which we live in, to our real person. They're superfluous, which means then you can choose your own gender identity. Well, that's all garbage. We are made in the image and likeness of God. When God formed Adam of the dust of the ground, we're already talking about intimate material. And out of that, he formed the man with all of the accoutrements of being a man. Okay, and then he's going to form the woman out of the man's side with all of the accoutrements of being a female, a woman. And those things are not incidental or tangential to who we are, but they are indicative, descriptive of who we are. So we are men and women, not simply physically, but also 
down to the soul of our being. Men and women are constituted differently emotionally. They're constituted differently even spiritually. Okay? We're related, and we're re related in complementary ways. And the complementarianism of being male and female is seen biologically, a man and a woman fit together in a way that two men do not fit or two women do not fit biologically. But we also fit together in a complementary way in terms of psychologically and spiritually. So when the Hebrew here talks about a helper comparable or fit for him, it is talking about this complementary nature of being made in the image and likeness of God as male and female, that we go together, and so that the, the, the whole is greater, you might say, than the sum of its parts. Okay? And this is partly the mystery of being human, but it's part of the joy of believing that we're made in the image and likeness of God that we were fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb so that everything that we are as men or everything that we are as women is actually good. Aside from the sin that's corrupted us, that's not good. But to be made in the image and likeness of God as male is a good thing. As female is a good thing. And as we talked about marriage and family being the building blocks of society and culture, that is, um, that is a great thing. And we should consider it a holy vocation. All right, so, did, was there a question? Oh, verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call each living creature. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable or fit for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. Notice how he is emphasizing the physicality of the woman. She shall be called woman. What does woman mean? He explains it in the next line. Because she was taken out of man. That's what woman means, out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So notice in verse 24, what happened in the creation of the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, from his side, becomes then a paradigm for every other marital union that will follow. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. There's no other men around. And be joined to his wife. Passive tense, God joins them together. And they shall become one flesh. So what God did, in other words, in creating Adam and then woman, Eve from his side, and then bringing them back together. Think about that. He creates Eve out of Adam's side, and then he brings them back together, and Adam says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's how every man should view his wife and every woman her husband. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and there's a new constituted order. The two become one flesh. Okay. So Rachel's primary relationship was to her mother and father before she got married. And in the home, the primary relationship is Bob and Amy. But when Rachel gets married, now the primary relationship is Rachel and Kevin. Follow? There's a new order established. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That now becomes a primary relationship to that of the father and, and mother. Okay? So what, what is being said here in Genesis 2 is not merely the creation of Adam and Eve from his side, but the creation and institution of marriage. And notice how it links back to chapter 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion and so forth. So God made them uh, male and female. Okay. Yes. Because it's talking about, it's a good question. Did you hear the question? Why does it say the man shall leave his father and mother and not the woman shall leave and uh, the man shall leave and the woman shall leave? Okay? Because it's a transference, if you will, of headship. Okay? So the man leaves father and mother when Kevin leaves father and mother to be joined to his wife, he is becoming a new head under God. Okay, and then the and is joined to his wife, and then whoever his wife is, her head is no longer her father, but now her husband. This is the order of creation. Okay, the ordering of creation. I mean, there's an order uh, in those. Saint Paul says the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God the Father. You see the ordering of creation. So that's why it says that. This is why when we talk down through civilization, except in our politically incorrect world in the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st century, we all always talked about the human race. We, we use the word man. And when we use the word man, we were talking about Mankind, men and women, but we call it man because of the ordering of creation. Adam is created, the woman, 
Eve out of Adam's side. This is actually healthy. You know, it's not, as, as, as Adam looked at Eve, Beth, he was, he was overjoyed with delight. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So, though in the order of creation, Adam was created and then Eve from him, for Adam, he, she was the object of his love, his greatest affection. That she meant more to him than he meant to himself. Okay? Which is a Christian understanding of marriage and family. And this goes back to God's nature of self-giving, sacrificial love. So he cannot love himself more than he loves his bride. He loves her more than himself. At least that's how we were created to be. And that does not, that's not negative, that gives fulfillment. It's certainly not negative for the woman because for the woman it puts her on a pedestal as the object of her husband's love. Okay. Uh, so it was a very good question. Thank you for asking. So some of this we've already covered then. Um, what, this is number seven, what did man exercise by naming the animals? He exercised dominion. Notice the parallel. Did not God name things in chapter one of Genesis at creation? Now, since he's given dominion over the creation to Adam, he exercises that dominion. This is what I mean by we were created to be like God is and to do like he does. Okay? Of course, uh, none of the animals can be his wife. How was Eve created? His rib out of his side. Okay? Now, just as we talked about with chapter 1, there are shadows of the gospel of Christ in the early pages of Genesis, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in the, in the day, remember, what, what constituted a day? Evening and morning, that sequence. And that sequence applies to death and resurrection that was yet to come. The week of creation, how many days did he create six days and on the seventh day he rested what is the first day of the week what's the name of it Sunday Sunday Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday he finishes his work of creation in the redemption week holy week Jesus dies on Good Friday and says it is finished from the cross. Okay, So there's a parallelism going on there. So what you see foreshadowed in creation then finds its fulfillment in redemption. Bob, did you have a question? Why is it evening and morning, not morning and evening? For that reason. Um, we think of the day now as you know, morning and evening. But from God's point of view, 
He's already anticipating the eternal day of the resurrection. Okay? So there's, there was darkness when Jesus was crucified. He's buried on Easter morning. It's the light of a new day. So it's, it's, it's simply the anticipation of death, darkness, resurrection, light. Death, evening, morning, the dawn of a new day. Does that make sense? Okay, so in, in darkness, the cross is, um, the darkness is emblematic of the suffering and death of the cross. The suffering and death of the cross is what causes the light, which is emblematic of the morning. Are you with me there? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is God's way of rendering. Why does he render time that way? And what I'm trying to say is there's shadows there already of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. Because he, before, he created all things already with the cross and resurrection in view. And that's built into the creation. So the, the, the seven days of a week the sixth day, he completes his work. Just as Jesus, on the sixth day, completed the work of salvation. And just as God rested on the seventh day, the body of Jesus was laid to rest on the seventh day. Okay. So now, with the creation of Eve, out of Adam's side, while he what? While he slept. Okay. When we get to the Passion in a few weeks, in three weeks, I believe, the Passion under the second article of the Creed, we see Jesus there dying on the cross. And then, when he gives up the Spirit, and he is dead, they pierce his side, and John says, He's seen it, and out of his side, the blood and water flow. It's a picture of how the church, then, is created from the side of Jesus, from the blood and water. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are that which create and nurture the church, which is described as the bride of Christ. So, as the first woman was created out of Adam's side, so out of the side of the second Adam, Christ, the church is created. So it's another one of those illusions. So you, you don't see this except by hindsight. In other words, when you're in John's gospel, then you, then you see that. Going back to the evening and the morning thing, in John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Word is the eternal Son. All things were made through Him, God the Word, the eternal Son. Apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. Now this verse. And in Him was life, L-I-F-E, and that life, L-I-F-E, was the light, L-I-G-H-T, of men or of mankind, evening and morning. 
So it's the anticipation of the eternal light and the eternal life, which is Christ. It's kind of built into the fabric of the day. I mean, I just think about it. I, then I think about it um, when I go home tonight, I will be ready, and so will you, right? You're ready right now for bed. Is it not true? Is it not so? But we did okay. But tomorrow morning, if it is as glorious as it was like yesterday, I think it was. Today was a little bit overcast, wasn't it? Yeah. But yesterday, I just remember parking and walking in the parking lot. I didn't want to come inside. I wanted to stay out in the light of the day and the sunshine. Okay. So, but that pattern, evening and morning, death and resurrection, is already built in there. But here, Eve, while G Adam sleeps, it's the first surgery, right? He's, he sleeps, and then out of his side, the Lord God forms Eve. Our Lord falls asleep in death from the, Christ, from the cross. It is finished. And out of his side, the blood and water, the new Eve is formed, the church. And this is not original with me. None of these things are. I haven't had an original thought in my life. This is all the ancient church fathers meditating upon uh, the texts of Scripture because they didn't have YouTube or the Internet or Facebook or anything. So they were stuck with the Scriptures, and then they, they read and studied and thought about all these things. Okay? Long history of that. Okay? All right, so then... Um, Who instituted holy matrimony? This is easy. God did. But it's not easy in the society and culture because now the Supreme Court can say what marriage is. And that's not really true for us as Christians, but the idea that man defines what marriage is is new. Um, it has been for millennia the idea that marriage is bigger than what people decide that it is. One of the dangerous things that uh, went on, it still goes on today, but even in churches, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but how many of you had pastors have you write your own vows? And it sounds really romantic and intimate and personal. However, what it does is gives you the impression that marriage and the commitment is what you make it out to be, not what God defines it to be. So, I would advise against those things. But there's subtle ways in which the understanding so if someone wants to marry their cat, based on the argumentation that the Supreme Court made in terms of allowing same-sex unions, there's no reason why they can't, according to what they, how they argued. Or two men getting married, two women getting married, there's no reason under the arguments used by the Supreme Court that any number of combinations of human beings can't constitute a marriage because it's whatever you 
decide it to be and want it to be. So it could be one man and three or four women or what have you, whatever permutation you want. So it's really an important thing to understand that this is God's institution that he created and made. Um, what did Adam confess about Eve? Easy, verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. How is the union of Adam and Eve described, and how does this reflect being made in the image and likeness of God? It is in verse 24. How is it described? One flesh. How does that connect with the image and likeness of God? The one God who is three persons. Implicit in the one flesh union of the two is a third, children. Implicit within the union of the two, the male and the female, is fruitfulness, a third. Shall I say that again? Implicit in that union of the male and the female is a third, the fruitfulness of children. Now, I repeated that several times because this, again, flies in the face of contemporary culture, where the one flesh union, which is, comes about by God bringing you together, but then through the intimacy of the sexual union, there's no other union physically that can create or has the possibility to create children but the union between the man and the woman. Okay, so there, there is an intrinsic nature to that union, and the implication of the one flesh union is the capacity for children. Why was there um, no shame in the one flesh union? Now, I didn't read that. I stopped before 24. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Why was there no shame? There was no sin. But let's talk about that a little bit further. In their state of innocence, it was, there was nothing hindering their communion, their fellowship, because there was no sin. Communion, you know, there's another word we get out of that, communication. You know, they talk about when marriages break down, it's a failure to communicate. Okay, problem with communication, okay? Well, there is no, nothing hindering their communion. The free giving and receiving and withholding nothing from the other. So all that I am is yours and all that I am is yours. All that I am is yours and all that you are is mine. So there's no shame, free giving and receiving in, uh, in love which is a physical giving and receiving. Okay. Now we uh, will move into, that's the status of things, the creation of man and the greater detail of the 
institution of holy matrimony. Now chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then they, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now we'll stop at verse 7. Who entered the creation in the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve? Satan. Again, this is looking at it from hindsight. Who is this serpent? This serpent is none other than the devil, than Satan. By the way, later on, Satan, we learned that name means accuser. And in this account, he is accusing God of something before Adam and Eve. He's accusing God of lying. With whom did the serpent speak? This is question 14. Eve. Notice... He goes to Eve. This goes back, Beth, to the order of creation. Her head is Adam. The sa Satan, the serpent, goes to Eve. What did the serpent call into question? Did God really say? How did Eve respond to the serpent? She spoke what she was taught, Beth says. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. Is that true? Did God say that? But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say that? Not completely, Amy? Okay, explain. Who did God say, don't eat of it or you will die? To whom did God say that? To Adam. How did Eve receive that word of God? From Adam, through her husband. Okay? If, if the bull could kill little Becca if she went into the bullpen. 
What would you tell her to, not to do? What? Not to go into the bullpen, right? You know, But she's not in the pen right at the moment. She's outside the pen where the bull is sticking his head through to eat some hay or whatever. But you know, get away from that bull. One swat of the head and serious damage is done. Okay? Who does she Is it possible to eat fruit without touching it, by the way? No. So Adam is her preacher. Adam is her preacher. I know it is common to say that Eve added something to God's word. She didn't add a thing. She was repeating what she was taught. If something's going to kill you, stay away from it. Don't touch it. Adam is her preacher. He passes on the word of God to her. She was within him at the time that God spoke the word to him. When I, when I preach the word from the pulpit, or when I teach the word here on a Thursday night, is the only thing that I'm doing reading scripture? So when I apply and explain the word of God to you, am I adding to it? No. Now, I might be if I'm a false teacher saying something that the word is not saying. Okay? Good. Um, how, this is 17. How did the serpent contradict the Lord's word? Did you see what he said? You shall not, you will not surely die. So he calls God a liar. And then he says, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's question 18. What did the serpent promise Eve? They'd be like God. You know, good and evil. What's the problem with that? She, uh, she already was like God. She already was like God. Like Prove it from the Bible passages. Prove it with words from the Bible passages themselves. Creating God's image and likeness. Okay? All right? Chapter 1, God made them male and female, created them, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So they're already like God. Okay? Now the knowing is the devil leading her to believe that she would be greater than God wanted her to be or that she would be more knowledgeable than God wanted her to be, as if God is withholding something from her? Yes. Okay? That's the accusation. God claims to love you. He doesn't love you. He's withholding good things from you. If you really want to be like God, eat of this. If you really want to achieve a higher status, eat this. Okay? That's a lie. That's a total lie. She was already like God. And it would not make her more like God. It would make her like the one who spoke the lies to her. What is the serpent's nature? If God's nature is self-giving love, 
What is the serpent's nature? Selfishness. Self-centeredness. So you will not become more like God, you'll become less like him. And that's always the way of sin. The way of sin and rebellion is that you become less like God, not more like him. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was it that gave Adam and Eve and all of creation life and existence? God's word. So to turn away from God's word leads to what God said, death. To turn away and eat of the tree is to turn away from God's word. The result is death. Uh, what did Eve rely upon when she took of the fruit and ate? Look at the text. Becca says herself, which is not incorrect except what does the text say? She relied upon her, her eyes, her eyesight. She saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, it was pretty. So that's the ultimate criteria, right? If something looks pleasant and pretty, you should take of its fruit and eat. But it might be poison. Or if it's another person that's not your spouse, it's called adultery. Might be pleasant, might be desirable, but it doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. She took of its fruit and she ate. Where was Adam when she ate of the fruit? Pardon me? With her. It's the biggest scandal of all. Through this whole exchange, he's keeping his mouth shut. He does not defend the honor of God, nor does he defend his wife. In the New Testament, when this is described, Adam is blamed for the fall into sin, not Eve. He to whom the word was given directly by God abdicated his responsibility as her head. Rachel. How can They're a state of innocent, is the better way to put it. The state of innocence, living from God. Um, but God did not create robots. Okay, uh, He freely loved, and in order for it to be loved, they had to freely respond in return, as opposed to being like enslaved in their response. Okay, So there had to be the possibility for a fall from the beginning. Okay. Now let's read on to what happens, verse 8 and following. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So who does he blame? He blames God and the woman that God had given him. 
And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here's the origin of the devil made me do it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that in a moment. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, as our time runs short, let me just take you through these remaining questions. How did Adam and Eve respond to having fallen into sin, turning away from God's word, eating of the tree? How did they respond? They hid themselves. They hid themselves. When Adam was drawn out by the Lord, he blames God and he blames his wife. When Eve is called out, she blames the serpent. Notice how this follows the pattern of what happens still to this day. When we do something wrong, we want to hide, we want to pass the blame, we want to justify ourselves, we want to say it's not our fault. What did the sound of the Lord God in the garden cause Adam and Eve to do? Hide. And they were filled with what at that sound? Fear. Yeah, fear that they hadn't been uh, experiencing before that. Uh, why were the creatures of creation affected by man's fall? Go back to chat. Yes, Amy. Correct. Because they were given dominion over the creation. And so the creation is affected. So it is as if Adam and Eve were handing the keys to the car over to the evil one to smash it up. Okay? We're, we're bound up with this creation. The things that we suffer under in creation are a direct result of man's fall into sin. 
Who is the seed of the woman? What would he do and how would he do it? Now, I will, you see it's in verse 15, where in speaking to the devil, that he says, the Lord God says, I will put enmity, that strife and warfare, between you, serpent, and the woman, between your head, between your seed, sorry, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. How do you kill a snake? Crush its head. So it's written, if you see the indentation here, it's in a uh, poetical form at this point in the narrative. So it's in the form of a riddle. Who is the seed of the woman who will crush with his heel the serpent's head or power or authority? The son of God, who is the virgin-born son of the Virgin Mary. He crushes the serpent's head. And in the process, his heel is bruised. What does that refer to? When is the, his suffering and death upon the cross? So here in Genesis 3.15, we have the prediction of the crucifixion, the suffering and death of, of the Son of God on the cross. Now, one of the things that we'll talk about again when we get into the second article of the Creed, but I'll bring it up here. Why did... If you go back in the story, why did the serpent want Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did he want that? So they would die. He wanted to destroy them. So how, that's, and that's the devil's power. In fact, they must die. Why must they die? Because God's word said, the day you eat of it, you will die. So what does the seed of the woman, the son of God, do? He steps into our shoes. He becomes man. And he defeats Satan, crushing his power over us by dying our death. Are you with me? We talk about being redeemed from sin and from death and from the power of the devil. What is the devil's power? God's own word. The day you eat of it, you will die. The day you eat of it, you will die. So it is as if God were saying, you're right, man must die. I will become man. I will die man's death. And by dying our death, this is why we speak about Jesus dying in our place. This is a death that's the separation from God. This is the death which is the, the punishment for sin. The Son of God takes our place, takes our death, and thereby he crushes the serpent's power or authority to condemn us. Okay. The curse of the fall is what is being talked about. You know, what is the curse of the fall? For woman, notice how a God cursed the creation. What will she experience? Pain in childbirth, that which is unique to her uh, office as woman, wife, mother, that's where she will experience the curse of the fall because of sin most intimately. And what about the man? 
the toil of daily work in the sweat of your brow you will bring forth your your bread so have dominion be fruitful and multiply and have dominion notice how the curse then corresponds to those two fundamental things um, we'll talk about this more later but the purpose then of the curse of the fall is to bring about a knowledge of our need for Christ, for our Redeemer. And, um, but we'll have to talk about that in the future. Okay? Let us prepare for the sacrament. near with a true heart and confess our sins to God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word gives life and has created and sustains all things. We thank you for the sun, the moon, and the stars which you give light to the earth and order our days and seasons. We give thanks to you for the expanse of the sky, for the water that sustains all of life, and for the dry land upon which we live. We give thanks to you for the plants and animals of your creation. You have given all of this to us for our good and for our enjoyment. 
We give thanks to you that you have created us in your image, male and female, to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the creation. We thank you for ordering our lives and giving us rest and refreshment through your word. But most of all, we thank you for redeeming us and all of creation from sin and death through the gift of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to trust in you as our creator and to believe in your Son for eternal life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment, you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve who ate the forbidden fruit. And you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, 
take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. body of Christ given for you, the 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 body of Christ given for you. 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 The blood of Christ shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed for you. 
the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. body of Christ given for you, the body of Christ given for you, the body of Christ given for you, the body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his mercy endures forever. Thanks and praise to you, Almighty God, everlasting Father, for your divine tenderness and love, that you have again given us grace to receive the holy body and precious blood of your only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, that through this sacrament which we have received with the mouths of our bodies, we by faith may evermore retain the treasures of your grace given to us in this sacrament, even the forgiveness of sins, oneness with Christ, and eternal life. By your grace, enable us to walk in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, not doubting that at the last you will give to us and to all who bear the cross for his sake the crown of everlasting life. Hear us, Heavenly Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.